You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Jonathan David Church. Jonathan is an economist, a financial uh, analyst, and a writer who has been published in our, in our magazine, Ario, Quillette, Archdigi, The Agonist Journal, Marion West, The Good Men Project, The DC Examiner, and other venues. And Jonathan has also written an, um, several long correspondences on the platform Letter, some of them with Matt McManus, who has been a previous guest of this pod- on this podcast. I will also link to those in the show notes. And if you haven't checked out uh, Letter Wiki, I would highly recommend you check it out. If Twitter is like a bar brawl, then Letter is more like a virtual think tank. It's a place where people are having long form, serious one-on-one conversations in public letter form. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks. Uh, good to be here. So I've invited you here um, largely to talk about your forthcoming book, which you've kindly allowed me to get a sneak preview of. It's called, um, it we're coming out with Roman and Littlefield. When is the projected publication date? So as I understand it, the uh, my submission was due um, end of this month, uh, just about finished. Um, but with, uh, so uh, I think it's, six months approximately of processing and all. Um, but uh, I would say that the COVID crisis is probably going to delay, delay that. Um, so it's hard to say at this point. Well, I would encourage, do you have a mailing list for people where they can, people who want to pre-order? Uh, that I don't have yet. Yeah, I, uh, that I assume will all get worked up uh, or worked out with uh, the publisher. But, um, you know, as with everything else in the world right now, COVID has kind of disrupted things. Sure, of course. Um, well, I'll recommend that people um, write to me if uh, if they're interested in pre-ordering your book. Yeah, that would be great. We can create a, a list of those people because pre-ordering is a sign of love. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, the book is called Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racial Inequality. So I'd like to start by, um, what do you understand by white fragility? This is a is a, um, a term popularized by Robin DiAngelo in an eponymous book. And perhaps you could just explain briefly so that people know what page you're on about that, how you understand it, and perhaps uh, let's begin with what you feel is the most problematic element of of this theory. Um, 
So uh, the subtitle to uh, D'Angelo's book is Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. And the title is White Fragility. And so uh, the title is essentially answering the question posed by the, su the subtitle. Um, so white fragility is essentially an idea that tries to explain why we can't get white people on, vo on board uh, to fight what uh, she would call structural racism, uh, which is essentially racism. Um, uh, in her paper, uh, 2011, which is uh, the paper that introduces the uh, term, uh, she defines it as a, a, condition, a condition in which a minimal um, amount of racial stress triggers a, a, a range of defensive moves by white people. So essentially, um, you know, emotional reactions like uh, guilt and anger and leaving the stress-inducing situation. Um, so the basic idea that D'Angelo is, is trying to articulate is that white people essentially don't want to talk about their complicity in structural racism. Um, so uh, that's uh, the basic idea that she wants to pre present. Um, you know, uh, there is certainly something to be said for um, trying to uh, solicit um, the participation of white people in, um, in fighting racial in, uh, inequality. In fact, I don't want to say it like that. That's, that's essentially what we want to do. Um, the problem is that uh, the underlying paradigm of um, whiteness, which is how uh, racism is, is understood by uh, uh, D'Angelo, leads to a lot of sort of um, claims about how racism is maintained and stays in place. Um, and one of the basic ideas is that as a white person, you're necessarily benefit from white privilege and that you have all sorts of implicit biases and that you've been culturally conditioned to uphold white supremacy and that you, uh, are sort of by default, the norm and therefore the sort of superior, uh, group, uh, in society. And so note that the idea of the norm is, is taken as equivalent to, superior or superior, which is something that we can dispute. And so um, this idea of, of complicity uh, by default, uh, by unconscious default, is something that white people have not sort of taken kindly to when she uh, puts forth that idea in, you know, diversity trainings, events, talks, and, and then ultimately in her papers, in her, in her book. Um, and so I guess that's the charitable way to put it. And it's probably, I mean, I, I imagine she'd find way, you know, she would want to, I don't know, maybe she would have, uh, she would edit that in some way or another. But um, the, uh, the problem is that in practice, um, it tends to be a lot more divisive um, than, you know, we probably would like it to be. And the reason for that, I think, and this is obviously my my view, my argument is that um, it's very much a sort of doctrinaire crusade rather than, or it has become such a doctrinaire crusade and not something that's necessarily coming from sort of a position of humility, um, although she would dispute that and say that humility is what we all have to you know, um, encourage in our, or cultivate in ourselves. But the problem is she has a very, very 
uh, specific um, and do doctrinaire way of understanding what racism is and how white supremacy is coming is is kept in place, and that if you don't um, jump on board with that, and if you have show any sort of disagreement or you want to question if you have any kind of healthy skepticism, then um, you're showing white fragility. And so the, the idea is that there's a sort of uh, underlying Kafka trap uh, that um, is uh, you know problematic, which is that you know any sort of uh, disagreement is taken as evident evidence uh, of guilt. Um, and in this case, uh, any sort of skepticism is taken as evidence of your complicity in white supremacy. Um, so the Kafka trap is, is, is the most obvious the, uh, problem that resonates with a lot of people and is, you know, probably explains a lot of why she's encountered a lot of resistance and hostility um, in her you know, from white people in her trainings and so on. Um, so, you know, that's the first problem is this is the Kafka trap. Um, now on one pro on one level, it's a problem because, you know, you're shutting down debate or she is, you know, basically any kind of disagreement is taken as invalidation of her theory rather than healthy skepticism. Um, on another hit level, I mean, you, you, you know, you want to be charitable and understand that, you know, uh, is, white people being participating in these sorts of environments, you know, you don't, you yourself want to be open to new ideas. And so you don't want to sort of do a counter, counter, counter Kafka trap and, uh, and, and sort of inflexibly resist all everything that she has to say. And she does make some reasonable points. So, you know, there's a, there's a balance that you want to strike there. And I can appreciate that, you know, the Kafka trap can work both ways, but, um, I think uh, in the context of a critique of white fragility theory, uh, Kafka trap is problem number one. And the reason it, it's, it's important to point out is because there's a whole bunch of problems and critiques that uh, we need to see, um, a lot of problems that under, uh, underlie the theory of relativity. And number one is that the implicit bias par paradigm uh, is not all that it's cracked up to be, at least by D'Angelo and whiteness scholars and proponents of white fragility theory. Um, so that's the second big problem is that the, um, and we can talk about that, but the uh, implicit bias paradigm, as I understand it, and you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm just someone who's taken you know, a fair amount of time to study some of the, the literature on this and correspond with a few psychologists and so on. And, um, I'm not saying that the implicit bias paradigm, implicit bias paradigm is, is just completely wrong or that it's got no value or anything. I'm not saying that, um, but I am saying that it's, uh, um, it's not all it's cracked up to be. There's numerous problems. There's this whole second generation of researchers just pointed out that we simply don't know as much as we think we know about it. Um, the third problem I would say is that, uh, it relies on this paradigm of whiteness as the sort of underlying pillar of, um, of racism, as of racial inequality. Uh, and whiteness is something that's very hard to really talk about because it's, it's ultimately very vague. Um, she would characterize it as this constellation of practices and no habits and norms and so on that, you know, we, uh, or that as that white people sort of reinforce and, partake in, in their everyday lives, you know, just the way they think and act and so on. 
they've been sort of subconsciously um, conditioned to believe in ideologies, discourses. Uh, two very prominent examples that she highlights in her dissertation are individualism and objectivity. And that belief in these sort of ideologies, discourses of quote-unquote whiteness um, upholds white supremacy. And so, for instance, to go back to the definition of white fragility um, and the Kafka trap, uh, she will uh, usually start her talks by sort of saying, hello, I'm white and I have, I grew up in a white uh, society and I've been conditioned as a white person to have privilege and, and you know, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, as a result, I am... Uh, you know, I, I go about my daily life thinking and talking in different ways uh, that keep white, white supremacy in place. And one of the ways that I do that is that I think of myself as an individual and not as a member of white or as a white person. Um, and so, you know, she and I have no doubt that she that, that this is correct. But um, in her years of doing this, she encounters, um, you know, common uh, forms of resistance or whatever reactions. So for instance, you know, I don't see color or I'm an, I was taught to treat everybody the same, or I'm an individual or my grandparents were discriminated against and so on and so forth. And, and so one of the, uh, the, the sort of common theme here is that I'm an individual and you're an individual and, 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 you know, group differences are not as important as individual differences. And so, you know, that's a whole other can of worms that I address um, at various points in the book, but uh, it's just not possible to have that kind of discussion because you just have to take, take it as she gives it that, you know, individualism is just crap as in the sense that it's an ideology that up, 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 you know, it's a discursive, it's a discourse that upholds white supremacy. So um, anyway, without going further astray, the, the idea is that it reinforces what we call whiteness and whiteness is, um, has been, you know, uh, what various people call, uh, reified, um, in society. And by that, I simply mean what I've been saying, which is that white supremacy is whiteness. And that the fact is that historically, socially, and whatever institutions, our ways of life, everything have been built by white people, constructed by white people, and are reinforced by white people to, to maintain white supremacy. And in that sense, whiteness is reified in society. And that uh, relies on this idea of reification, which is itself, at least on its face, a logical fallacy. And by that, I mean abstractions, which is what ultimately this idea of whiteness is it's an abstraction um do not take on concrete um life for or reality i mean they're not something that walks through you know the idea with for d'angelo is that whiteness is embedded in the uh, in our institution so you know you have instances like um, a graduate student walk being in a class studying jane austen's novels and thinking at one point you know you know, these are some big time white problems, but he can't say that because everybody is in the class is white. Now, in some way you can appreciate, you know, that, you know, maybe this will be an uncomfortable moment and whatever. And, you know, 
you know, again, there's this, you know, you get really into the nuances of this and you can appreciate the complexity. But on the other hand, it's not as if this moment of discomfort is itself fundamentally causing right and white or racial inequality um, in the sense that, you know, it's reifying whiteness. You know, whiteness is not sort of, um, you know, uh, floating around in the room like a, like Casper the ghost or something, um, you know, keeping white supremacy in place. You know, that's the sort of fallacy of reification. So, um, and then I guess last, since I've been going on long enough, I guess is throughout the rest of the book, I'll sort of talk about um, several conceptual, um, empirical, logical flaws in her reasoning, uh, things like the genetic fallacy, the fallacy of the ecological fallacy, and um, just misunderstanding the Frankfurt School and critical theory and, and so on. I mean, it's just very poor thinking is essentially, and, and it's fleshed out throughout the book, but there's just some really poor thinking in my view. Um, but to just to recap, you have um, the Kafka trap, the implicit bias paradigm, and the reification fallacy um, are the three, you know, sort of real fundamental problems I see. And, and from that stem, you know, either gives rise to or reflects or is reflected in the numerous other flaws that I see in her work. Right. Let's let's return for a moment to the um, implicit association um, and the implicit association test, which I, I think that a, a, a great deal of this new critical race theory is based on the idea of a subliminal unconscious racial bias um, in people's minds. So a lot of it is psychological speculation. And I, I think that defenders of the theory would say that this is a way of, they are depersonalizing it. So by talking about whiteness and implicit bias, they are uh, able to acknowledge racism in society without without throwing out accusations at individuals. But I it it feels to me it feels very dystopian um, and Black Mirror esque to me to be trying to guess what is inside people's heads um, and I guess I well I don't know if, uh, to what extent people are uh, are penalized. Um, but this attempt to control what people are thinking, um, that seems authoritarian to me in a, in a quite disturbing way. And I have taken the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. And if anybody needs to know my score, I took it only once, but apparently I have a moderate preference for African Americans over European Americans. I think this is an artifact that had to do with just which fingers I was using to press the buttons, because it's really primarily a test of response speed. That's right. You see an image and you see a word and you have to try to um, associate, to see how quickly you associate the two. So you see positive words and, and black faces or negative words and black faces, positive words and white faces, negative words and, and white faces. And the, I can't remember what order I had to do these in, but I'm pretty sure the order makes a difference that I was either speeding up or slowing down as I went along. 
it really reminded me of uh, friends of mine who are on Jeopardy, which I, I, um, by coincidence you also refer to in your book. And they discovered very quickly that the the problem with um, Jeopardy is not knowing the answers to questions, but being able to press a buzzer very fast. So it felt to me like a test of how fast I could press specific keys in response to things. I I also, and this is something you discuss in the book, there is there's a question of what your immediate response or assumptions are and what your assumptions are um, once you've understood the specific situation. So for example, if I see um, if I see somebody coming towards me from a distance and I'm quite um, I have quite poor eyesight as some listeners may know, if I see someone who looks like uh, like they're six foot, tall coming towards me, then I'm going to assume that's a man. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't think any woman could possibly be six foot tall, or that if the person comes close enough that I can see it's a woman, that I'm therefore going to kind of deny that person's femininity or, um, or, or you know, not take them seriously or be in some way prejudice against them or feel they're less feminine because they are tall. Right. So it's it's about expectations. And I think that I, um, I'm rather skeptical as to how damaging expectations necessarily are if you are willing to correct your expectations when you're faced with reality. So it's one thing to expect your to expect your dentist, um, for example, to be a man. Actually, here in the UK, I think you would expect your dentist to be a, an, a South Asian woman. But if you if you are um, hiring somebody for your dental surgery and the candidate is not a South Asian woman, um, the question is not whether you're expecting what what identity you're expecting most dentists to have, but whether you'll be prejudiced against people who don't fit your immediate expectation of what the most common manifestation is. I hope I I hope I put that reasonably comprehensively. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have, um, I guess, a number of uh, thoughts. Um, the first uh, thing is um, that I'm trying to, I guess, I'm thinking of a paper by um, Gregory Mitchell. He's a psychologist and law professor. Um, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's just him. I think it's also uh, psychologist Hart Brant Blanton, um, James Jacquard, I think, in one of their papers. But anyway, the basic idea is that uh, implicit bias is not necessarily unconscious bias. Um, that uh, my understanding is that psychologists now have sort of um, acknowledged that that uh, implicit and, inc- and unconscious are not necessarily the same. The, uh, another issue um, is that as a reaction time test, the, IA, the, the IAT um, has a number of problems, one of which is that it, it can be, uh, you can learn how to uh, produce the real- results that you want it to do, want it to do, um, it can. It has uh, low test retort, retest correlations. So 
the test that you t took showing a moderate bias uh, for African-American might uh, reverse itself in a subsequent test. So mm, I um, know that's why I've sworn never to take the test again. Yeah. Just in case. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, which leads to another critique, which is that the predictive validity of the IAT has been subject to serious questioning. So just by taking the IAT test doesn't necessarily mean, and, 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 you know, scoring, uh, getting a score that tells you that you have some kind of moderate preference for one group or another, um, that doesn't uh, by, by any means mean that you're going to act in a discriminatory manner. Discriminatory manner. Um, that is something that the research has started to uncover. There was a huge meta-study um, last year, I think published in September, um, something like 400 or something studies, something like 87,000 participants, Anyway, the basic conclusion, and, and this included, by the way, one of the authors was one of the um, original architects of the IAT test. Um, but the study concluded that changes in implicit measures do not lead to changes in, implicit, in explicit uh, behavior or measures. And so, uh, you know, I guess sort of capsize the, the ideas or the, encapsulate the ideas um, one of the authors tweeted that he sort of started starting to see implicit bias as kind of star, scar tissue of the past. So anyway, the basic idea is that it's, you know, we don't really know exactly what implicit bias is. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be unconscious bias. Um, it's uh, based on a react, uh, at least the IAT. There are other measures of implicit bias, as I understand it. But it's a reaction time test, which is, you know, um, could have reflect associations, but then there's this sort of proposition model where uh, rescores reflect how you respond to sort of propositions that have been told to you before you take the test. The test. So, you know, there's different ways to, to construct the test. Um, so, you know, that's another thing that con construct validity has been subject to question. Uh, has very low t test or relatively low test retest correlations. So you don't necessarily the same, same, get the same score consistently. Um, so, you know, all of these problems, and then as you say, we're using it to sort of, uh, say that there's something going on in our minds that we have to be concerned about. And then, you know, this, you know, it's a matter of science. We can sort of appreciate these complexities and at the same time appreciate as one of the originators, um, of the test says, you know, it can still be a, a self-learning tool. So it can be useful and there's still a lot of research to be done and it may lead to some useful insights. Um, and so, you know, if we're going to be quote unquote objective, as much as D'Angelo says, that's not possible. Um, we can acknowledge pros and cons from either side. But unfortunately, when you get into activism, uh, it's people start to sort of run with this. And so you get, and I think I have various quotes in the book about, you know, this idea that uh, everything we say and do is somehow problematic and that you start running with these sort of totalitarian implications that we, you know, that uh, we have to sort of language police, you know, that, this is where we get into sort of polit political correctness and cancel culture and, and all sorts of things. So it leads to all these sort of practical problems. Um, and I guess, I don't know if you want to say. Ethics. Yeah, I, I just, I just feel that it's, it's none of the government or of any employer's business what I'm thinking. As long as you don't act in a discriminatory exactly, way. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so D'Angelo would dispute that and say that uh, 
in fact, if you believe something like that or you say that, then you're essentially, you know, you just describe white complicity that um, because, you know, what you're what you don't know that you're thinking leads you to act in explicit ways that end up sustaining white supremacy because, you know, it leads to discriminatory behavior. And the implicit bias research right now just doesn't show that. Mm. Uh, And then just to just one point that you really raised about, you know, sort of situational complexities. Um, Yeah, uh, you don't know exactly all the various ways that somebody acts in a certain way in a certain situation, right? If a if, you know, uh, Michael Dyson talks about, uh, you know, seeing a drunk weak, white guy, kid harassing a cop, but the cop just sort of blase lets him go, you know, go home and sleep it off. And he assumes that that would not happen to a drunk black kid. And so, you know, that's white privilege. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. There's all sorts of questions you can raise about, you know, what what whether the police officer would have acted differently on another day, whether a different police officer would have acted um, differently, uh, whether there's some other reason that he acted uh, acted that way and so on and so forth. And so you never really know. And so you get, you know, this problem of confirmation bias, omitted variable bias. Now, that said, you also want to acknowledge that you don't necessarily want to encourage just constant giving the benefit of the doubt because that has, that can be exhausting and, you know, you know, that can be problematic too. So we have to acknowledge that on average, you know, Dyson's probably right that, you know, the white, white kid, drunk white kid is going to on average, maybe, um, you know, come to a positive uh, outcome more, more likely than say to the drunk black kid, but, you know, in any given situation really don't know. And so I often think of white privilege in terms of sort of a Bayesian type of analysis, you know, the probability given, you know, your whites, but, but we don't want to, subject ourselves to sort of confirmation bias, uh, omitted variable bias, uh, base, base rate neglect, um, and so on. And I guess the upshot of all this is that it's just a very careful balance that you have to strike and, and it's constant. And so it's not just, um, uh, D'Angelo wants you to see it one way and only one way. And, well, she'll say it's all very complex. It's only all very complex in a certain way, which is white privilege, whiteness, as she understands it. And so if you want to raise the question, well, maybe this case, it just happened to be 3 a.m., the cop is tired and he wanted to go home himself. Well, then that's just white for complicity and that's sustaining white racial inequality. I would say that's, I don't know, that's just, that's just not adequate for me. You, you said something very interesting earlier on, and this this is a theme within your book as well, which was that uh, about the scar tissue of past racism. Um, so a lot of a lot of present racism is the scar tissue of past racism. Um, I think I'm not quoting that precisely, but you talk about the difference between racism and the continuing legacy of racism. Could you say something about that? Yeah. So first I would say scar tissue is, um, is the uh, phrase of, um, I believe it's Patrick Forsher, if I can pronounce that correctly. He was one of the authors of that meta study I was talking about. Um, that was something he tweeted so that that's his phrase. Um, the, uh, this is, this is actually a pretty um, fundamental point that I make, which is that um, my understanding of current sort of anti-racism thought scholarship activism is, um, and at least from uh, D'Angelo's 
vantage point. And in fact, you know, Ibran Zendi, I think, um, you know, is the idea that when you see racial inequality, you see racism. So that racism and racial inequality are in themselves the exact same thing. And I think that's a very problematic way of looking at it. This sort of requires getting a little bit more into talking about what racism really is. D'Angelo says this good, bad binary that we think of racism as bad acts by bad people, you know, basically like discrimination, whatever, that's racism. But that is not, in fact, racism, because racism is this systemic phenomenon that is just perpetually held in place by all of these implicit behaviors and ideologies and discourses. So we have to have this ongoing, lifelong struggle against our thoughts and our norms and our habits. Um, And uh, it's that view of racism that I dispute. Now, the nature of that dispute, you know, it has to be laid out very carefully. I try to do that in the book. Um, But the problem with with um, considering racism and racism, racial inequality as exactly the same thing is that it leads to this situation where you uh, you have, sorry, I guess what you call monocausality, that the only explanation for racial inequality is racism. Um, and uh, there's this sort of sub-definition of what re- re- that D'Angelo says is called aversive racism, which is, you know, you essentially f- explain things away to make yourself be- feel better. And so one one example, which is rather um, extraordinary, uh, um, is that if you attribute racial inequality to any other cause than racism, you're guilty of averse, aversive racism. And um, aversive, just, um, just to make that clear, because it sounds a little bit like reverse aversive racism. Aversive racism. That's right. And, uh, you know, saying like, well, you know, another example she'll say, say she'll cite is, um, you know, explaining, uh, segre- you know, s- segregated school or segregation, uh, in terms of like schooling, whatever. Um, like if you go to a, if you move into a, a school dis- or, uh, a district with good schools that, well, I'm doing that because, you know, it's necessary for my kid, a kid to get a good education. And so that, thinking that is an example of aversive racism. Um, and in fact, that's, I'm glad I mentioned that because that, that perhaps is a concrete example, which illustrates why this whole idea is, is problematic. Um, so, uh, Glenn, Glenn Lowry, um, he distinguishes between preferential affirmative action and developmental affirmative action. Uh, at least this is in a paper from 20 years ago, um, but preferential affirmative action is what we, I guess, typically think of, which is, you know, quotas and whatever. Um, and uh, developmental affirmative action is something that is, um, well, more systematic, which is that you're um, acknowledging all of these sort of developmental um, challenges in uh in say uh, minority or non-white communities that need to be addressed by um, investing in the infrastructure, the, in, the education, whatever, like um, uh, simply doing quotas. And he, he develops this sort of economic argument, which is, you know, if you're an economist, it, it's very intuitive, but how it can actually hurt the, the marginal case um, based on 
signaling and preferences, whereas developmental um, affirmative action is the idea that you sort of systematically target communities for, you know, infrastructural development, education, whatever, um, as opposed to sort of preferential or quota-based affirmative action. Anyway, the idea is that uh, I don't have any problem with somebody who wants to move into a neighborhood uh, that has good schools because he or she wants his or her children to get a good education. Um, I don't know what the implication is that, I mean, are you not supposed to do that? Um, and, and if you don't do that, is that supposed to um, reduce racial inequality? I, I don't see how that happens. Um, where I do think it's constructive to, to think is that we, we talk about um, how we can uh, invest resources in under, under-resourced communities. And by the way, um, just to illustrate this reification fallacy, um, by using the words res- better resource, under-resourced, in a, you know, D'Angelo is the type who will say, using the word under-resourced um, reifies the notion of better resource. It's like saying using the word underprivileged is problematic because it positions privileged as the norm. And so this is the sort of disc- discursive thinking that they get into and that this is the type of thing that sustains ra- rac- you know, racial inequality. Instead of saying that we want to expand privilege to everyone, we have to re- realign the way we think and stop using terms like underprivileged and privileged because using those terms reifies privilege. I mean, it's just... I mean, frankly, it, it sometimes comes across as quite nonsensical. Um, yeah, there's so much, so much kind of magical belief in the power of language. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, and so little focus on real material circumstances of people, and of and of kind of focusing on. So I don't. I um, I'm opposed to affirmative action because in the in the normal sense of quotas because it's discriminatory against uh, Hispanics and also encourages tokenism, I feel. We're doing okay because we have X number of black students at our university or whatever it is. Whereas the developmental, um, putting more money into underprivileged, underprivileged, there's that word, putting more money into poorer communities is something that it we should be boosting people rather than trying to bring certain people down. We should be boosting everybody's level, and I think that I mean you do acknowledge this in it's not zero sum. It's not zero sum. No, precisely, and I, you do acknowledge in the in the book that there is there are very specific disadvantages facing you if you are black in America. First of all, uh, many of these are the legacy of, of the legacy of history. It's only a few generations since um, slavery, and and it's only a generation or two since the Jim Crow laws. I mean, my father was born in 1924, so I mean, he if he had lived in America, he would have lived on, uh, in that through that period. Of, of course, he was in Bombay in India, but just to give us a sense of how recent this is. And those kinds of historical s- circumstances can really cast a long shadow. Um, and it it can take a long time to recover from that. And I think that's one of the reasons why 
probably one of the reasons why African-Americans are underperforming socially, economically, compared to, say, Nigerian-Americans and other more recent immigrants from Africa who haven't been through that kind of his history within the U.S. And you also talk about a kind of uh, a race burden that you may have as a black person in the U.S., you can see that D'Angelo is right that if you are black, you may be forced to spend more time thinking about racial issues. Um, you may be, right. you know, when you encounter a policeman, you may wonder if the policeman is going to be racist. You may spend a lot more time wondering if people are, are going to be prejudiced against you, inevitably. That's and that right. is that is a psychological burden on you. Yeah, so... I mean that that's right uh it's the weight psychic uh weight of uh or burden of race which she discusses i think the page 54 in her book i think um and uh so you know i guess summing up this point about the difference between racism and the legacy of racism is that um i don't you know the fact that there is this psychic weight of race that you can see people of color having a you know greater weight you know uh having to think about that whereas white people might to me that's just ref that's not racism uh whereas race d'angelo would say that is racism and that that's a very concrete example of our differences in what race so to me the traditional good bad binary and whatever that's racism and uh that's a you know and she for her it's crucial that we understand that that's not racism. And so here we get again to this notion of um, uh, reified whiteness, which is that, you know, whiteness is continually re evolving in a way that keeps itself in place. So for her, the idea that we think of racism as a good, bad binary um, is sort of a sleight of hand that we use to exclude, to exclude or to ignore rather these more implicit uh, manifestations of racism. It's, in other words, we can explain it away. It's like aversive racism. Um, and again, that's just getting into her notion of, you know, that racism is structural. For me, racism is the good, bad binary, and it is structural to the extent that you have, um, you know, historical things like redlining, um, and even to the extent that that sort of, uh, channels through future generations, like for instance, um, during the subprime housing crisis, you can see some sort of residual effect there um, in uh, disparate impacts on, disparate in, in, impacts on you know, minor, minority commu communities. Uh, UC Berkeley professor um, John Paolo, Powell writes about this. Um, but again, this is to me the, the legacy of racism. And there is a sort of there is a structural component in the sense that it's sort of the result of institutional decisions and the fact that you have things like, you know, segregation, segregated communities and, and, and all sorts of other manifestations of inequality, which can be traced to historically racist policies. And so I think it's certainly important to recognize that the problem that I have is this idea, again, like. I want to send my kid to a good school sister, school district, um, or that uh, you know I, I adhere to the idea that racism is, is you know explicit discrimination. That these are racially problematic 
that these are manifestations of white supremacy or white complicity. That is something that I dispute uh, very vehemently. Mm, yeah. I also feel that there is a tendency in some of this writing, less in D'Angelo's work specifically, but um, thinking about Peggy McIntosh's idea of the, the invisible knapsack of white privilege, yeah. that a lot of the things that Peggy's sites are simply to do with unavoidable results of being part of a majority. Yeah, that's an essential point. Um, and I think that, I mean, I am I am somewhat biased because I'm a member of an extremely small um, ethnic minority group, but I, I feel that in a liberal, in a secular, li- the, the whole point of a secular liberal democracy is that you can, or one of the points, is that you don't have a tyranny of the majority, that you can accommodate minority groups. And there's nothing inevitably oppressive about being a minority, nothing intrinsically oppressive. Because if you really believe there is something intrinsically oppressive about just being in the minority numerically in a country, just not, uh, you know, most people not looking like you or having the same food as you have or there not being as many, I don't know, religious buildings or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I... Flesh-colored band-aids. Exactly. It's the flesh-colored band-aids thing. Um, if you... That that is inherently oppressive and an untenable situation, that is an argument for ethno-nationalism, and I absolutely resist that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to say too. By the way, that I have no problem, you know, with uh, non, uh, you know, with with non-white emojis or or uh, or band aids or whatever. By all means, um, the the idea is that the idea that you have flesh-colored band aids is is inherently racist or it or oppressive. To me, just just it just I don't know. It's just weak. It it just doesn't. It doesn't resonate as something that really matters mm. in terms of really trying to address the real issue here, which is deep, you know, deep inequalities um, that need to be addressed. Um, mentioning Macintosh does take me to the sort of economic um, argument that I. Oh yes, which for, which for, for, I definitely don't want us to miss out on. So you talk about club groups and public groups with respect to. Uh, white people in American society. Um, I yep. found your your you given a kind of alternative reading, an alternative to the uh, critical race theory, which is an economic theory of white privilege. In a sense, could you let uh, please run yeah. us through that? I I will link to your ARIU article where you outline that also. But yes, go ahead. Yes, the way to begin is to say that. We can begin by acknowledging whiteness and white privilege as um, important uh, things or ideas or concepts. Um, Cheryl Harris, in a 1993 Hard Law Review uh, article, uh, argues that whiteness historically is a form of property. McIntosh, as you mentioned, talks about white privilege as an invisible knapsack of unearned privileges. So let's take those two ideas. and you can see whiteness as a form of public property that's owned by um, white people. And uh, it gives rise to these advantages that you have 
as a white person in which you can sort of quote unquote buy things in society such as you know avoiding discrimination or whatever by drawing upon your invisible knapsack of unearned privileges your sort of your uh, your white privilege account so that made me think about the economics of public goods um, public good is basically something that uh, it's like national defense or clean air it's once it's constructed nobody can be prevented from benefiting from it um, so there's these sort of positive externalities um, voting is a good example in this in this context so when I go to the voting voting booth I incur both a benefit and a cost I am I incur the benefit, or I gain the benefit of having expressed my view and um, choice as to who I want to lead. But there's the cost associated with having to get to the voting booth, you know, uh, driving there, waiting in line, and, and, and whatever else. And a lot of people probably make the calculation that it's just not worth it, right? What what does one vote really affect the outcome versus all the costs I have to incur to get there and vote? So that's a pretty classic public goods problem. And the idea is that there's positive externalities, that when I vote, it's not just me or I that benefits, it's other people who benefit. Because when this person is elected, then he or she uh, will then advocate policies that you know affect everyone. So there's this positive externality component. But people voting don't necessarily take that into account. They only take into account their own ben benefit. Similarly with national defense, you know, um, it takes a whole lot of cost to build it. And, but once it's built, you can't prevent anybody from actually benefiting from it. And so as a result, you can't people, get people to pay for it. That's why we tax people. Now, if we apply that to the notion of whiteness and white privilege, you can see, you start to think about what white privilege is. Macintosh talks about this invisible knapsack of unearned privileges. You know, she has 46 examples. They sometimes sound like something that you just cooked up while having a glass of wine on a porch on a Saturday night. But a lot of them, you know, make sense, like being able to move into a neighborhood without worrying about whether people are going to welcome you or not, and you know, that sort of thing. Um, but that's a very sort of um, brainstorming list, right? Let's try to refine this notion. And there's this philosopher, Lawrence Blum, who comes up and, and Macintosh sort of, by the way, I should, Macintosh distinguishes between privileges that are worth having and privileges that are not worth having. Um, an example uh, of privileges that are worth having, and now I get into Lawrence Blum expanding on this are things like being spared injustice. So if you're driving along the freeway and you're observing the speed limit and no cop passes you, you've been, you know, you haven't uh, incurred the pain of the injustice of a cop stopping you for no cause. And, um, you know, being able to move into a neighborhood seamlessly relatively speaking, is a something that we want everybody uh, to be able to benefit from. You know, majority dynamics like speaking a native language. These are types of things that we don't want to take away from anybody. These are sort of advantages that why in the world, I mean, is the idea that we take away these privileges and that somehow, you know, promotes the 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 
cause of racial inequality or racial equality, that doesn't sound right. Now, then there's privileges that are not worth having. So uh, an extreme example, you know, um, uh, finding a black person guilty of a crime that a white person uh, committed and the white guy gets away and the black person goes to prison because whatever, the jury is discriminatory or the system manufactured evidence or whatever. And so the white person benefits, the black person obviously does not benefit. And that's a privilege to the extent that that's white privilege that is not worth having. And it is in our collective societal interest to um, eliminate uh, those those, um, privileges. And so from an economic point of view, we have this difference between public goods and public bads. Public goods are things that are sort of collectively beneficial, but are very hard to get built because people don't internalize the social benefits, only the private benefits. And then there's public bads, which are things like pollution um, and things that firms or whatever don't internalize the social cost of. And so I think of white privilege as being divided, you know, per Lawrence Blum's argument, uh, between spared injustice privilege, uh, unjust enrichment privilege, and non-injustice related privileges. In other words, good privileges, bad privileges, and neutral privileges. And the idea is that we have to find a way to expand uh, public, you know, the good privileges and reduce the bad privileges. Sorry, I, I, didn't, to, I don't understand the co- concept of neutral privileges. Well, yeah, I just thought of that on the fly. I mean, it's basically the, the majority minority dynamic, like speaking a native um, language. In other words, it, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's for, for our purposes, it's, we're, you know, we're not losing anything by just putting that, lumping that in with good privileges. So there's good privileges and bad privileges. Um, and the, uh, the crucial economic insight is that white privilege is not an unearned, um, uh, advantage or an unearned asset. It's an earned asset in the sense that public goods require effort to, uh, keep in place. So all the basic institutional norms that we consider good, right? Police forces that, you know, impartially administer law, uh, courts, teachers, schools, everything that does the things that we want them to do in society, right? These are privileges, advantages, whatever you want to call them, but they're good, but they don't happen. They don't get built. They don't get maintained if we don't put an effort to do that. So the cop who, um, does not stop both a white and black driver, you know, that's, uh, that's sort of performing his official duty to not commit an injustice. Or when we welcome people into our neighborhood, we're sort of committing or doing our civic duty to, you know, our fellow neighbors, our our fellow citizens and and that sort of thing. Right. But you can imagine that in a racist society, you know, we don't bother with doing that for people who are not, quote unquote, our own, our, our own group or whatever. Um, and so in a sense, you could see racism as a kind of free riding 
um, by not fulfilling your civic duty to everyone in society, but only to certain groups in society. Um, and so the public good becomes a club, a club good for white people. It's something that, you know, you, club, club good is like gym memberships, country club memberships, whatever. You have to pay to get into them and only the, the you know, the, the people of that group can benefit from it. And whiteness is a way of making these sort of things a, glo- a club good. And so what we really want to do is make this club good into a public good for everyone. We want to expand privilege, the good privileges. And then we get into the public bods, which is sort of like pollution. We want to be able to find ways to um, mitigate, reduce, eliminate the privileges not worth having. And I don't want to go on and on about that and sort of get that, get, get into that in the book um, because I could talk all day about it. But um you know, the basic idea is similar to like pollution. We want to reduce it. We want to find incentives, you know, incentives for people to reduce it. And and then I sort of uh, conceive of this in, in a political framework. You know, economists call it the Coase theorem, um, which is, you know, a negotiation uh, between uh, parties to sort of arrive at a solution. And then I say that white fragility theory, because of its device of nature and the fact that it's wrong about this and it thwarts our attention from all sorts of issues, it essentially is, it poses a huge cost on this necessary conversation we need to have on how to expand good privileges and take away bad privileges. And, you know, so if it's, we get this bad theory that's very divisive, um, you essentially have what economists call what economists call is a transaction cost, which is the crucial impediment to a perfect Nicosian negotiation um, that takes place between two parties, parties trying to work out a dispute. So to recap, um, there's two types of what we acknowledge that whiteness is public has historically been public property property for white people. It gives rise to white privilege, but privileges are not simply this amorphous blob of whatever. There's good privileges and bad privileges. The good privileges have historically been club goods for white people that we want to expand into public goods by incentivizing everybody to perform their civic duty. In that sense, it's an unearned privilege and get rid of the public bads. And this takes place, you know, and this is in a sort of general framework of, you know, negotiation about how to deal with the legacy of racism. You can think of reparations as an example. Um, and so you know, that's the, ex- the idea and white fragility is essentially getting us away from that. It's a, it's basically a huge transaction cost because of its diverse, d- divisive nature and the fact that it's just, you know, wrong about so many things. I find that an extremely useful way to think about privilege, um, because, um, Otherwise, it's it's immediately vulnerable to the critique, which I'm quoting somebody from Twitter and I, uh, who said that if there had been a, a huge spate of, of stabbings in a town, you would be asking yourself, um, how can we um, how can we make life safer for the inhabitants of the town? How can we reduce the number of stabbings? How can we treat people who've been stabbed? How can we change the system of policing? Um, how, how can we look at the root causes of, of this violence? We wouldn't be focusing on the extraordinary privilege of people who haven't been stabbed. We wouldn't place our focus on kind of mind reading and chastising 
the unstabbed and talking about unstabbed privilege. Um, so, but on the other hand, of course, there are privileges which entail, which are zero sum, which entail taking something away from somebody else who more deserves it. So for example, if you are discriminating against a more qualified candidate for a job on the basis of their sex or race or sexuality or whatever it might be. Um, and I have, I have seen this uh, literally in action in India um, with regard to Indian Muslims. So you have people discriminating against uh, others for for jobs and housing because because they're part of the Muslim community. So that is clearly that's different. That is a privilege which you are sort of getting on the back of some of an injustice uh, to someone else uh, committed against someone else. And then there are these neutral things like, for example, um, when I was living in India. Um, most people are Hindu, most things are Hindu, most cuisine is kind of more standard non-Parsi Indian cuisine. There are 1,000, well, a million temples for every one Agyari. Um, but that, I, I don't find that in any sense oppressive. That's just kind of the way, the way things are. Um, and it's in, in any country worth living in, um, I, th I think, in fact, we can judge uh, how worth, how how well a country is doing by how comfortably and securely and happily you can live there as a non-member of the majority group. Yeah, um, D'Angelo might say that that's like um, I don't know, cultural or reverse of racism, but um, <laughs> I'm sure she, that, that, I'm sure she would. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean that's why it's it's an ongoing, lifelong, never-ending struggle. Because as long as there's, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, a quote-unquote majority group or whatever, there's always this sort of quote-unquote othering going on, and you know, so you know, they, the um, D'Angelo and whiteness scholars, or whatever, they'll they'll say that whiteness is, you know, what is. Um, what we're talking about in like America or the West or whatever, but the same idea applies to other societies. It's just that we're focusing on, you know, the Western society right now. Um, but, you know, you can see the same thing playing out in India, Japan, whatever. Um, and so, you know, it just never ends. Like, uh, and that, that it just, again, it gets, gets back to this reification uh, stuff and that, um, you know, and, and this notion of structural racism is something that you just, the only, thing that you can do is just keep fighting there's just you're never going to arrive at any kind of you know it's what coleman hughes what he calls the racism treadmill yes i think thomas chatterton williams rather beautifully calls it the nightmare from which tanahisi coates is trying not to awaken yeah it's, uh, that's that 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 sums it up doesn't mm, it yeah yeah well i mean the the concept of minority and majority races or ethnic groups may become moot um, if we're to believe what Eric Kaufman uh, project, uh, predicts in his book, White Shift. Kaufman is a previous guest on this podcast, um, which is that in the West, at least, there will be um, a 90% mixed race majority by the year 2100. And um, 
as a result of the kind of racial mixing and the way in which skin color inheritance works, it doesn't work quite the way people imagine. We aren't all going to be beige. As my friend Razib Khan puts it, there will not be a beige future. Uh, but instead, people's looks will not be good predictors of their parentage. Um, and siblings may look very different from each other. That, that This is Razib's prediction. Well, D'Angelo would, would say, you know, you're not, you're, you're not, it's not, it's not, if, you know, having multiracial uh, nieces and nephews does not excuse you from complicity in institutional racism. <laughs> of course, we're all, we're all guilty. I mean, that's unavoidable. But I, I mean, this may become a moot point, the whole idea of a majority versus a minority racial groups, at least in the West. But I'm sure we will find other ways of other ways of defining majority versus minority. And it must be, we must be able to be comfortable with the idea of being in a minority. That's got to be a purely neutral phenomenon. I would say, by the way, that uh, D'Angelo has a real problem with the notion of neutrality. And I don't necessarily dispute the point, which is that, you know, it is very hard to be neutral, and maybe it really is, but she confuses that with objectivity um, and treats them as the same thing. Um, I just thought I'd point that out. Mm. I think it's also, there is also a difference between people's, individual people's attitudes towards you and your own kind of self-consciousness. So I think that one thing that being a minority does is gives you a level of self-consciousness and anxiety about how people view you or treat you. Um, are they treating you well just to be politically correct, for example? Did they give you that job just to fulfill some diversity quota? Are they likely to be racist or not? Um, I think that it's very difficult to completely eliminate those doubts from one's mind, or it must be. And I think that that may or may not be psychic scarring. And it's very, very tough. The problem is it's very tough to know, um, was this thing actually a subtle form of racism, some kind of microaggression, or is the person paranoid and imagining it, which is not their fault either. Well, I would say too, but uh, as much as D'Angelo hates the, well, maybe not hates, but discourages us to think about uh, things like universalism, you know, I think of somebody uh, who's trying to get an article published and submits to places that have very high submissions and doesn't get, you know, accepted or whatever, and then starts to think about all the different ways that he or she was, you know, was not uh, accepted and, you know, comes up and, you know, all sorts. Of, so, I mean, you can apply the same thing to all sorts of different scenarios where people have self-doubt about this or that. Um, and I mean, I understand in this particular case, we're talking about racism and it has a very visceral and important, um, dimension that, that, you know, we don't want to ignore, but there's a universal aspect to that too, which is that humans are essentially insecure, you know, people that are always going to be subject to self-doubt because of all the various environmental things going on that they really don't have a full grasp on. There is, and, and there is also the fact that we notice patterns and that is never going to change that is a um both a feature and a bug uh, of the way that our brains are designed so i think that in a sense we often approach these things the wrong way around so if i if we if for example um 
you have more people of one group than another committing crime and you see a person of that group and you, your first thought is to fear that they might be a criminal. The blame, I, I'm not sure that I would say the blame is with you. The, you are to be blamed if you don't revise that opinion um, or if you allow that kind of conjecture to lead you to condemn the person in front of you and not take the trouble to look and see who this individual actually is. The bigger problem is not that you are accurately perceiving a greater probability. Um, The problem is, why are are people in that group more likely to commit crimes? And my usual feeling is it has to do with uh, poverty, material circumstances, culture, which is an offshoot of that, and a whole other perfect storm of of causes and it's those causes that are that we should be focusing on rather than the person who has accurately in their mind recognized a probability yeah for sure i i was about to say i'm sure i'll get pushback for that but actually i always get pushback for the things i'm not expecting and um, whereas the things I think will be controversial tend to go by without a ripple. So. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I observe uh, um, the same sort of uh, thing um, as well, uh, for sure. So, Jonathan, I'm aware that you have very limited time, and thank you so much for so generously giving some of that time to me today. Yeah, no problem. Is there anything that we have not touched upon that you would you would like to mention? Um, I mean, I'm sure I could think of hundreds of things, but um, but no, I, I think uh, uh, you know I tend to um, be um, not as receptive to D'Angelo's idea that. Uh, that anti-racist work is something that we'll never stop doing um, because it has this uh, discursive power that is continually regenerating like some monstrous hydra or whatever, uh, and that all we can do is be perpetually on guard. Um, I just think that's very uh, unproductive. and in practice tends to be quite divisive. But but the point being that, um, you know, I could talk for a long time about this, but uh, I think uh, the basic ideas are, um, I mean, you always want to be open to critique and whatever, but I think I've laid out the basic ideas, ideas uh, of the book. Thank you so much. I want to also just, just kind of say a sp- Special thank you um, to you from uh, all of us on the letter team because you have been the most fantastic letter writer. And I have been reading your correspondences and I will link to them in the show notes. And I'm especially struck by how um, um, how kind of um, calm and thorough you are in uh, when you're talking to people on the opposite on the kind of other end of the political aisle. Um, you've been such an amazing uh, role model of just um, clear uh, discourse that is polite, but doesn't kind of pussyfoot around disagreements. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Um, Rusinsa is what I, it's what I strive for. I mean, truth is possible. I mean, 
D'Angelo would disagree perhaps, but I, I think the, the truth is attainable, but, um, well, I guess you would say something about your truth or whatever, but anyway, tr truth is attainable, but it's elusive and you just, um, you know, uh, nobody, I, I, it's hard to say that you have a monopoly on truth. I guess if you say that you sort of have given up on trying to, I don't know. The point is that getting at the truth is hard. And so, you know, um, and, uh, it's important to be able to, uh, uh, engage with, um, other people because, um, you know, you, you, you can't figure out everything on, on your own. Um, so I'm glad that what I'm striving for seems to be resonating. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. You are definitely resonating strongly with me personally, Jonathan. And thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, and, uh, obviously you guys at Leto and, and Ario are, are great. And, um, and I certainly have appreciated everything that we've been, uh, collaborating on and, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, nothing but appreciation um, and respect from me. So if any, uh, anybody who is interested in uh, staying in the loop as to when the book is being published, um, because of all this disruption with COVID-19, it's, it's unclear precisely when, but it is coming out. And I have read the manuscript. I highly recommend it. I would suggest that um, you can... Uh, uh, you can send me an, an email and I will forward those to Jonathan so that he has a, a mailing list. Um, and I highly recommend you do that. Keep an eye out. And thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on. Yep. Um, you know, any news I get, I'll probably post on Twitter at some point. Excellent. I'll put all the details into the show notes as always. Um, thank you so much and have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.